When you need to refuel between meetings or running errands, or you just want a healthy snack that squashes your hunger, wonderful pistachios, which come in a variety of flavors and sizes, by the way, are the perfect choice to fill you up and keep you going throughout the day. Wonderful Pistachios is also a good source of protein and a zero-guilt snack. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, guys, which gives you over 10% of your daily value. And with flavors like salt and pepper, sweet chili, and seasoned salt in the shelled variety, options like chili roasted, sea salt, and vinegar or jalapeno lime in the no-shell variety, you're sure to please your taste buds while snacking healthy. So check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Oh man, do I have a treat for you guys. There's a new podcast in Town Squad and it's called Back in the Saddle with Jillian and Janice. Ha <sighs> Janice is back, team, for an all-new special edition podcast that's raunchy and raucous. It's like happy hour with your old friends, except Janice is sober, but it's still a great time. Go to anywhere you get your podcasts, arguably where you got this one, and just search back in the saddle with Jillian and Janice and get ready to have some fun. Welcome to Keeping It Real Conversations with Jillian Michaels. All right, team. Today's conversation is with PhD Dr. Axel Montagna. Now, he Americanizes as Montaigne. So I'm trying to be hip to the jive here, right? And, and pronounce his name correctly. But occasionally you will hear his name is Dr. Alex Montaigne. I want to throw that out there. And Dr. Montaigne happens to be a specialist in the field of cognitive decline, most specifically something called small blood vessel disease, which you've definitely heard us touch upon, and I'm sure a host of other episodes throughout the years. When we look at cognitive decline, we typically think of Alzheimer's, and now we are becoming more aware in gen pop, if you will, amongst the layman, myself and Cindy included, of small blood vessel disease. And I'll let Dr. Montagna explain what both of these things are in detail, what this means. But I can tell you that as I'm getting older, you you start to forget where you left the keys, right? Or you have a harder time recalling certain words in your vocabulary. Or you have friends who, who have parents that are suffering with different forms of cognitive decline, you become more and more aware of your mortality and more and more aware of trying to prevent or push these things farther down the road. Um, Now, I heard Dr. Montagna um, give this incredible interview with um, another individual that I follow who's a PhD named Dr. Rhonda Patrick. And he was absolutely blowing my mind with information I've never heard about dementia. So I'm going to stop trying to explain this to you and get the expert to come on and explain what these things are, what they mean, what we can do about it. Um, However, Cindy wants me to throw out this one thing. There is a cell in the blood vessels of our brain that help to make up our blood-brain barrier, and it's called parasite, parasite. And in some cases, it can kind of sound like parasite. Throughout the course of the show, there are no parasites in your brain that we are talking about today. Woo, how about that, right? This is why, <laughs> see, this is why I probably should have gotten my PhD before trying to trying to interview these brilliant minds. But in I vocabulary. Good, yeah, you get because here's the problem. You get one brilliant mind interviewing another brilliant mind and nobody can understand what they're saying. But if you have an average bear like myself interviewing a brilliant mind, I can generally get the message across, you know, to the other to the other, you know, layman out there. All right, here we go. 
Dr. Montagna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I have to say, when I heard your interview with Dr. Rhonda Patrick, you absolutely blew my mind. And as a person who has experienced seeing a loved one with Alzheimer's, and I'm at that age, Doc, where I have so many friends who are dealing with parents that have dementia, after listening to you speak, I was like, okay, everybody needs to know what this man is working on and your breadth of knowledge is staggering. So I, I want to start from the beginning. Forgive me. Can you explain right off the bat, what is dementia? What are the different types of dementia? And am I correct in believing Alzheimer's is only one or are all of these different things linked to Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's is an umbrella of this condition? Almost. So uh, you're partly right. So dementia is an umbrella term uh, and you have many subtypes of dementia and Alzheimer's is one. And that's the, the, the most common one and that everybody knows about Alzheimer's disease. Um, but there's many dementias. There is, uh, I couldn't tell you how many because I'm not an expert on all, but I can give you a, a list of a few that are very important. So the number one, as you said, is Alzheimer's disease. So that the, the most common, uh, where there is a genetic form as well as a sporadic form, meaning that there is a few people that have genetic mutations and they they have it, you know, in the family and they have a, a likelihood to develop the disease. Um, and we can talk about what it is exactly a bit later. So that's one type. Uh, and there is the sporadic form, which is the the most common form of Alzheimer's disease. So 95% of people having Alzheimer's disease do not have it through a mutation of a gene. They just have it because they have certain genes that are at risk uh, to develop the disease. So we still don't know why some people develop or don't develop the disease, but that's um, something that not a lot of people know. There's 95% sporadic form of Alzheimer's disease and 5% are only genetic, so like a, a mutation of a gene. So that's wow. one big, the, the most common Alzheimer's disease. And the second most common form of dementia is called vascular dementia, also called small vessel disease. So we have small blood vessels in the brain and, and they can collapse sometimes or they can, you can have a stroke. Uh, I guess most of, of the audience should know the word stroke, I guess, when you have a blood clot uh, forming in, the, in those tiny blood vessels and then you don't have oxygen, you don't have blood flow and the little area of your brain will die. So that's small vessel disease. Um, so they have these multiple strokes or these blood vessels that start to degenerate a bit and then it forms, depending on where it happens in the brain, you have this vascular dementia, which will lead to cognitive issues, uh, daily activity issues, so many cognitive problems. So the two most common form, again, Alzheimer's disease, small vessel disease. And then you have many others, and, and there's a lot in the news. Parkinson's disease is one, right. Um, right. Uh, which uh, affects a different part of the brain. There's FTD, frontal, uh, frontotemporal dementia. Bruce Willis, uh, you probably heard recently. Yes, yes. Um, so there's Lewy body dementia, uh, there's mixed dementia. Some people have a combination of different types, like Alzheimer's plus vascular dementia. You could have both also. Um, and Huntington disease, I don't know if it speaks to you. Uh, that's another one that is genetic. Um, so there's many forms of dementia uh, and there's groups of research uh, worldwide that are you know, specialized into this subtype. Me, my work is mostly focused on these two most common forms, Alzheimer's disease and small vessel disease, which um, they share a lot of things um, together. So we try to understand those diseases. Doc, I understand small blood vessel disease, which we'll, we'll get into obviously in a bit greater detail later on. But it speaks for itself in the title, right? Okay, you've got these little blood vessels and they're dying, there's damage, and your brain dies. You just, pretty obvious, and you just explained it in 30 seconds. Alzheimer's, I still haven't gotten a grasp on, and I must have heard many, 10 different talks on this in the last six months. It's type 3 diabetes, it's the buildup of amyloid plaque. No, it's not the buildup of amyloid plaque. We don't really know. 
what exactly is happening in the brain or do we okay. know? How do you, what is Alzheimer's disease? Yes. Um, so, I mean, great question. Um, even between researchers, we don't agree sometimes. Uh, wow. So it's, it's, yeah. it's the, the, I think the best word to say is this is a multifactorial disease. So there's multiple causes. So one of them, what happened to the brain? Um, the way we diagnose Alzheimer's disease is there is a, a specific protein called amyloid. So that's a protein that you produce in your brain that you need for a normal brain function. And at some point in certain people, this protein will will start to, uh, to misfold. So that's a scientific term, but basically this protein will start to, to aggregate and the brain won't be able to clear out the excess of amyloid. So you're going to have some amyloid aggregates building up in your brain, brain, and they form plaques. So you have these plaques in between nerve cells full of amyloid um, 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 protein that will form and, and grow over time, and you're going to have multiple ones. And depending on where you have these uh, plaques in the brain, you're going to have some cognitive problems. And so the, the, the nerves, the neurons, and all these cells won't be able to com communicate uh, properly because of these plaques uh, stopping basically the communication. So that's the diagnosis. Now we can measure in your blood or we can do a, a scan and looking at the, the level of amyloid you have in your brain. And that's the diagnosis we put on Alzheimer's patient. The okay. problem is we don't know, we don't know, I mean, how this, I mean, why these plaques are forming at, at the first place? We don't really know. Um, some people will have will have plaques formation. Some people won't, although they may have some genetic risk. So it's very complex. Um, so there's a lot of research around this area. So when you have amyloid built up, these plaques, and there's a second thing that is specific to Alzheimer's disease. Again, a bit complicated term, but it's it's called tau pathology. So tau is T-A-U. So tau, it's a, again another protein that will be hyperphosphorylated. So they're going to basically form aggregates again uh, in between neurons, in between nerve cells, and they're going to stop again um, uh, the communication between these cells. So you have amyloid plaques, tau tangles. That's the way we, we say it. So this is purely Alzheimer's disease. If you have this one or the other, or both, I mean, uh, you have Alzheimer's disease. So that's the definition of it. Why are they talking about Alzheimer's um, in relation to diabetes, and in some cases referring to it as type 3 diabetes, which I find confusing. Why not just yeah. allow it to be a component of type 2 diabetes? What is the connection there? Yeah, so, so I think the origin of type 3 diabetes is because... Um, some people, some people in the field, and it's quite controversial, but uh, first of all, type 3 diabetes is not a diagnosis. It's just a term that some researchers are, are bringing up front. So what it okay. means is there is a link between insulin resistance, so which, which you have in type 1 and type 2 uh, diabetes, and brain health. And these groups of research, um, they... they Basically, their claim is this uh, insulin insulin um, resistance is linked and causative and cause the buildup, I mean, of amyloid plaques, basically, to make it a story short. Um, so there is some evidence of that. So, uh, of course, it's very important to control your blood sugar. Um, and there's a lot of studies showing that people, you know, having high blood sugar and, and even type 2 diabetes are at risk to develop dementia later on, including Alzheimer's and, and other other type of dementias. So I think we, we need more to, to really say, okay, this is Alzheimer's disease is uh, possibly at least um, uh, developing because of some sort of blood, blood sugar levels that are elevated and the brain, um, you know, uh, suffer from that. Doc, what if um, you have an individual that has no biomarkers of insulin resistance, but they have amyloid plaque buildup. Can that 
yeah. happen as so that can happen as well which is why this is not conclusive that that's why that's why the oh. research i mean you can tackle from many angles we there are some people that are resilient for whatever reason they may have diabetes for a while and they will never develop dementia and vice versa you have people that don't have cardiovascular risks so we talk about diabetes but there is hypercholesterolemia hypertension and these are risk factor that uh, one person will have a, a high chance to develop some sort of cognitive problems. But it's not always the case. So there is also specific groups of research that focus on these resilient people. Why these people having all the risks to develop dementia? They don't. And that's very, very, very fascinating area of research as well. Of course. Okay. Um, I understand that you are an expert in the blood-brain barrier, and that plays a role. So um, that's going to be a long one. I'm preparing everybody because I have a million questions on this. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to dive right into the blood-brain barrier and everything we need to know there. We'll be right back with Dr. Montagna. All right, team. You know I love Skims underwear because I've mentioned them and have been wearing them for, gosh, a little over a year now. So I finally had to try their bras, and Skims has delivered yet again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. Even the underwire bras I wear all day are so comfortable, I barely even notice I'm wearing them. Whether it's the weightless scoop bra, the fits everybody bra, the plunge bra, uh, the fits everybody t-shirt bra, I always get them in sand, so you never notice them. Super comfortable. Love them. Wear them nonstop all the time. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com now. Available in 62 sizes, 38 to 46 H. Plus, get free shipping on orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know I sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows. Your business was going great, but now your team is buried in manual work. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,025, one. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash Jillian. That's netsuite.com slash Jillian to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash Jillian. So as mentioned, Doc, what is the blood-brain barrier? It would seem self-explanatory, but then it's basically not. I don't get it. What is it? What is it? So blood-brain barrier. So BBB, um, that's how we call it in the, in the field. So it's it's the term is perfect it's a barrier basically so there is a barrier between the bloodstream and the central nervous system so the brain but also the spinal cord um, so we call it barrier because all the blood vessels you have throughout the body they are what we call fenestrated so they are permeable to things so that there is a, an exchange between blood and and different organs the brain is, is very different there is this barrier with um, cells, different cell types and different molecules that make this barrier uh, very, uh, what we call impermeable. Nothing can cross, except a few exceptions. Of course, we need some oxygen, nutrients. We need the brain to be uh, healthy. So there is some transporters to cross the things we need in the brain from the blood and vice versa. We can also remove stuff from the brain going back to the blood to clear how the toxins uh, that we accumulate um, during the day. So this barrier is, um, is very tight and there's multiple cell types. Um, and I don't know one, the, the most famous one is the endothelial cells. So these are the blood vessels, basically it's a tube. 
And around that tube, there is many things. There is uh, a basement membrane, so it's a, a layer of uh, fibers around. Then you have different cell types. I don't know if you heard about astrocytes, pericytes, mm -hmm. uh, perivascular macrophages. So there is multiple cell types that are uh, tied to each other and really uh, unwrapping those this tube. And so there is a, a different layers. And so for something to go from the blood to the brain, it has to be through pathways and through transporters. So it's highly regulated. So to give you an example for glucose, we talked about glucose. So when we, we eat, I mean, the brain needs I mean, glucose to function, right? The neurons and the nerve cells, they need sugar. And one receptor is called GLUT1. So that's the main receptor that we have on this uh, at the blood-brain barrier. And GLUT1 is basically taking up um, uh, glucose from the blood and bringing it to the brain. Uh, and in different brain regions, depending on what you do, if you, depending on your action, or so that's uh, very regulated and 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 very interesting uh, part of the brain. And um, this barrier, what I've been showing in the past few years, and plus other groups, this barrier will start to uh, to uh, disrupt and and be more permeable as you age. So that's something okay. that happened with normal aging. But what we've noticed is people having, um, you know, going towards Alzheimer's disease or having genetic risks uh, risk for Alzheimer's disease, they tend to have an acceleration with a, a breakdown, what we call the breakdown of this blood-brain barrier. And this is very localized. We can see that now. Uh, and and what happened when, it, when the, the BBB is disrupted, there is toxins from the blood going into the brain and not only the molecules you need in the brain. So there's a lot of things we have in the blood uh, and you probably heard the term uh, coagulation. You know, uh, there's a balance to make sure we have the, the blood that is fluid enough, but not too thick. Otherwise you're gonna have some strokes and, and things like that. So these right. protein that regulate this coagulation, they can access the brain and they are toxic to the brain. So that's what I've shown in the past few years to make it simple. It's a, it's a plumber issue. Um, you have a pipe that disrupts and you have things going in chronically, slowly. Uh, it's not a bleeding. It's just a disruption where you, you will have toxins accumulating in the brain. And this will basically over time kill your nerve cells. And depending on where it is, you may lose memory or different things. And that's something we have... Um, been showing in, um, um, multiple times now and multiple groups worldwide are showing that and it's quite early. We can detect things years and years before you develop cognitive decline or any sort of cognitive impairment. So this is a very early uh, event. And now the idea is whether this breakdown of the barrier is the cause of amyloid plaques in the brain in Alzheimer's disease or is it the other way around, the amyloid plaques disrupting the vessel? So there is still a lot of research and, and different people thinking uh, about different theories. But basically, this is happening also in Alzheimer's brain. Your blood vessels just are leaking out, basically. Now I understand that the blood-brain barrier exists within the blood vessels in the brain. Yeah. And they are selectively grabbing what they will allow in glucose being one example yep. in order for the brain to get energy but most things need to be kept out there yes. and now if i was to even continue to question on toxins for example if i'm eating big predatory fish and i've got mm -hmm. a lot of mercury buildup in my body yep. could that be something that also gets leached into my brain when the blood brain barrier begins to degrade of course, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm not a mercury specialist, but yeah, it could be anything as long as the, the size of the molecule that is in your blood can go in with a sufficient uh, breakdown of the barrier um, because there is different level of breakdown. Uh, very, very small leakages, bigger leakages. Um, so yes, in theory, yes, you can get anything in your brain. What would be considered normal brain aging? Because you mentioned... Um, you know, accelerated. What, when would I expect that if I was, quote, normal, right? What would be a healthy age for 
my brain to fall apart in, at, at this moment in 2023 <laughs> and what's considered accelerated like 50 is accelerated 80 is quote yeah normal. um it's it's hard to say because yeah it's 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 not uh, black or white right it's it's always there's always a gray levels so normal aging i mean what i call normal aging is we when we look at alzheimer's patient brain with a scan or biofluids looking at their blood biomarkers we we always need a controlled population where we know these people don't have alzheimer's but we want them age matched and we want them cognitively normal so when i say normal aging is people that a certain age that are that have all their cognitive capabilities um, and they are aging normally uh, I don't like the term because we, no one really ages normally. Right. Uh, because as I said, the brain, the blood-brain barrier will start to leak a little bit as you age, but that's part of the aging process. Right. Um, so acceleration. When I say acceleration is... Um, so these cell types I was mentioning that are wrapping around these tiny blood vessels in the brain. Um, one of them that is very important, and that's my current... Um, investigations in my lab are called pericytes. So uh, they, they wrap around those tiny blood vessels and we know that these pericytes, they just detach those vessels as you age. And in Alzheimer's disease, they, they detach even quicker and even more in certain brain areas. And of course, when they are detached, what will happen is, um, as I said, there is a breakdown of the barrier. And because they are here to really make sure that everything is tight and sealed, and when they are gone, things will start to leak out. So there is much more loss of these pericytes around the vessels, and it's always associated with more uh, toxins from the blood accumulating in the brain. So when we look at post-mortem brain tissue from uh, people donating their, their brain for science, we can see that if you have Alzheimer's disease, there's always a connection where you see a loss of these perivascular cells that are gone and an accumulation of toxins, which uh, will be uh, detrimental for brain health, obviously. So I understand how if the blood-brain barrier is degrading, things are leaking into the brain. Yeah. And when toxins get into the brain, it could potentially be related to the buildup of amyloid plaques. Yeah. Does the blood-brain barrier degrading also play a role in small blood vessel death. Yes, I'm trying to find the best term to avoid to be too scientific, but there is this where the capillary strings or okay. uh, ghost vessels, so the vessels, basically those tiny vessels will collapse and just disappear. So meaning that the area that you have that you, where you need, you need blood vessels, right, to, to get your nutrients and the oxygen. Uh, if they start right. collapsing one by one, uh, slowly and chronically over time, this is going I mean, to be bad for your brain, obviously, and depending on where it is, you right. start to have some uh, uh, issues. So yes, uh, those vessels will start to collapse. And what is interesting is, I didn't mention that, but the breakdown and the 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 degeneration, uh, the degeneration of these vessels will also, independently of amyloid plaques, will also trigger, um, you know, uh, a death of different nerve cells, depending on where you are in the brain, and some sort of dementia. So you don't need necessarily uh, amyloid plaques, I mean, in this, in this case, but uh, you can have also just leaky vessels will end up being bad for your cognition, obviously, so. Okay, so that makes perfect sense to me. The blood-brain barrier falls apart, stuff gets in, and they eventually die. Yeah. Got it. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, Obviously. Now I know I have a whole bunch of questions on what can we do yep. and um, and all of that, but I I first want to know if there's anything outside of the obvious that um, is making the uh, blood-brain barrier more permeable. I, I tend for some reason to think about leaky gut and our mm -hmm. intestinal lining becoming more permeable. I understand yeah. Um, a little bit about that. And I understand after speaking to a gastroenterologist, it's like, well, these things can break down that barrier and make it more permeable. Yeah. Would you say, like, oh, Jill, alcohol, 
uh, <laughs> cigarettes. Uh, these are the things we know are breaking down this barrier. Or is there nothing conclusive like that, food-wise, supplement-wise? Yeah. So I'll take it one by one. So, um, so yeah, one of the what we are trying to do right now in my lab, but in many labs, is trying to understand why, basically, why this barrier breaks down. And and I'm going whatever you said right now is all of them are playing a role. So that's again the difficulty of research because everything is playing a role and it's hard to investigate one by one. It's hard to investigate the impact of smoking uh, versus uh, you know uh, uh, diet because you know it's always you know communicating and there's a lot of things going on. So. One by one, the cardiovascular risks. So I think that's the very important, the cardiovascular risk factors. So what we talked about earlier, so diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, um, uh, hypertension. These are, uh, and also history of stroke or smoking. These are things we know, and there's studies showing that, that these things will break down your blood-brain barrier, basically, uh, over time. And we know some of the, of the mechanisms. So. I won't go in detail today, but yeah, we know one one thing I didn't mention today is there is tight junctions between uh, the endothelial cells that are making those tubes, so those blood vessels in the brain. And these tight junctions can be degraded by uh, different molecules in the blood and in the brain that can be produced. And we know that people having uh, hypertension uh, and diabetes will and or at risk for Alzheimer's disease the, the, we know some of the mechanisms where uh, very speci special proteins or proteinases that will degrade those tight junctions. So basically eat them up. So the link between each individual cell will basically be uh, loose over time. And, uh, and at the end of the day, there is no more tight junctions between cells. You, you can imagine that things will go through in between cells and access Absolutely. to the brain. And hypertension, it's as simple as if you think, if, if you're hypertensive, um, the tiny blood vessels will suffer because they, you need a certain amount of blood flow. You need, you need also the flow to be at a speed that is not too high or too low to extract the oxygen and the glucose on the way. So if you have hypertension, you will have a dysregulation of cerebral blood flow, which what we call CBF, and, and this will over time, this will degrade all the, the transporters at the blood-brain barrier and, and things will get loose and, and uh, break will break down over time. So it's just a, a couple of examples, but uh, you mentioned diet. Um, diet is a big one too. Um, obviously, there's a, there's a list of things we can talk and I know it's a bit- uh, Okay, about then you what know what, you... Doc, hold on. Because if it's, <laughs> then let's take yeah. a break right here and yeah. let's jump in with regard to what we can do, exercise, diet, supplements. I want to know about saunas and fish oil and alcohol. I have all the questions. Okay. We'll be right back with Dr. Montaigne. Quick break for the sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, 
The learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Let's begin with what we can do. I first want to talk prevention because I am under the impression, obviously, that reversal is a much more difficult task if it's possible at all. And I want to cover the drugs and all the new medications later. First thing is, let's go with food, then fitness, then supplements, then lifestyle. (laughs) Food. I mean, obviously, no processed crap, no refined grains and sugars, because we've already touched on the fact that type 2 diabetes can play a role here. What are the less obvious things that will be great and be terrible? Yes, so diet is it's it's a big area of research, especially nowadays. I'm not an expert. I want to mention first, I'm not an expert in diet, but I know I know a few things. Um, so, just going going back a little bit on fat because it's it's clearly linked to the blood brain barrier, which we already talked about. So, something that you know uh, better than me, the omega three fatty acids, right? Um, these are very important, so you can find them, you know, as you know, um, you know, in salmon, mackerel, um, you know, walnuts, seeds. Um, so these, I would emphasize this because, and I'm biased because it's partly my research, but. Um, the DHA, so DHA, the most common you know, uh, uh, subtype of uh, omega-3 acid, they they need they need to you know they need to go in the brain also through the BBB, um, and and to do that we are studying a receptor a specific receptor that has been found like a few years ago uh, very recently uh, it's complicated it's called MFSD2A, and this receptor has been linked in Alzheimer's disease to be uh, drastically reduced at the blood-brain barrier. Um, so meaning that there is less, you know, um, DHA um, transporter uh, and transport to the brain. So that's, I think it's very, it's very new. It's very, um, you know, we need more uh, to understand what's going on. But what is, what the people are saying nowadays is if you take supplement, and again, I'm not an expert, but if you take supplement, there's some uh, uh, meta-analysis that shows that you can restore uh, the MFSD2A levels in, at the blood-brain barrier. So you can increase this receptor at the blood-brain barrier and improve uh, the transport from the bloodstream to the brain. And there is some hint saying that that might help cognition. So here it's a direct link between some food, uh, some diet uh, that are good for your brain health, basically. So again, I'm not an expert, but me, when I've I've been asked the question, I mean, what should I eat? And so, <laughs> first of all, I, I'm not an expert, but various things uh, like antioxidant, it makes sense, but uh, people, you know, the berries, uh, spinach, things like that, there's a lot of flavonoids, so a complicated name, but it's antioxidant and it protects your blood-brain barrier, among other things. It's anti-inflammatory. So at least talking about antioxidant and this, um, you know, uh, old grain, as you said, and um, some uh, omega-3 uh, uh, fatty acids, acids, these are at least good for your brain bl- uh, blood vessels, which, as we discussed earlier, is very important to keep healthy, to keep your brain healthy. So the obvious would be avoiding an inflammatory diet of heavily processed yeah. foods. Mm-hmm eating whole foods in their most natural form. So they'll have all the polyphenols and the flavonoids, antioxidants, the micronutrients, the healthy fats, common sense would, you know, rule the day here. It sounds like you're saying to me, um, with regard to caffeine and alcohol, I really want to understand your thoughts on this. If you have them simply because you hear things like, oh, coffee can improve cognitive function. Okay, can it? Or I've even heard, and I'm wondering about this, that a small amount of alcohol can help remove amyloid plaque from the brain. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've seen research on it. I, I, we mentioned yeah. it in a book I wrote about anti-aging six years ago, but now a bunch of people are coming out against alcohol and it's the devil again. 
Any thoughts yeah. on those two things? Because we hear good and we hear bad. Yeah, so yeah, so I, I drink a bit of coffee, a bit of alcohol. And again, I mean, I, I won't have a, a surprising answer, but it's again the balance. So if you get too much, it's bad. If, if you get a little, it's good. And so there is a, a lot of studies. So to go back one by one. So caffeine, it's, I mean, it, it's good. It, I mean, to a certain degree, right? It, if you drink too much, it's not great. It starts, you, in, in terms of blood vessels, uh, you know, they're gonna start to constrict. And so you may have uh, like a subtle hypoxia in the, in the brain with a bit less oxygen than normal because you drink too much coffee. But vice versa, if you, if you go uh, to a certain amount that is not too much, it could have some good uh, impact with your uh, vascular activity and helping the blood flow and, and get your brain functioning better. So it's it's very a subtle balance. And again, I'm not a caffeine uh, expert, but uh, as you said, it's confusing because but you can that's read. that's the mechanism is how it impacts your blood flow. Yes. So it's oh very confusing okay, because I understand. you can read you can read papers showing uh, X and the other papers say, no, it's not X. So it's very difficult. Some people say caffeine is good and prevent dementia. Some people say the opposite. But it's, it's, it's all about how you look into it and uh, how you control for things. It's, it's a very complex answer and there is multiple pathways involved. So caffeine can activate multiple things. Um, right. So it's very hard to, there's people working on that specifically. Um, and for alcohol, it's a bit of similar situation. I'm, uh, I mean, we always, when I, I talk to people that are 100 years old and I always ask them, so what do you do to stay healthy? And they always tell me, I mean, not always, obviously, but uh, most of the time Often. they tell me, oh, I'm drinking my uh, little glass of wine every day uh, for lunch. Or, and that's what keeps me healthy. So that's the thing we hear, right? Uh, but in terms of science, whether this is real or not, um, I think it's, uh, in terms of wine, at least there's grapes in it, there's antioxidant, there's flavonoids. So probably wine is probably a good thing. Uh, I wouldn't say drink every day, but a glass once in a while, I mean, would, would, wouldn't hurt you. I mean, but of course, if you go to a certain level of uh, alcohol, you know, alcohol, like on a daily basis, this is clear in the literature that it breaks down your blood-brain barrier. Um, and that can be, you know, it's highly dynamic. You can have a hangover with a leakage of your blood-brain barrier, and then it seals back again. But all these things, if you do that chronically, it will damage your brain. I mean, that's that common, common sense. Sauna. Um, what are your thoughts on sauna? Obviously, I've, I've heard Dr. Rhonda Patrick talk about the extraordinary heat does something with heat shock proteins and can potentially remove amyloid plaque. Am I grasping this right? Is there a benefit? To be perfectly honest, uh, the, so the impact of sauna on brain health, um, I've seen it through Rhonda Patrick. <laughs> so, okay. And then okay. I went to see a bit the, the, the papers talking about this. So uh, it's not something I, I was, uh, but it, it makes sense. There's a few papers that show, you know, it improves uh, cardiac functions. You know, it helps to, to increase your heart rate. Right. Um, and obviously, when you do that, you it's easy to 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 imagine that the small vessels in your brain and retina and everywhere you, where you have small vessels that tend to collapse a bit, you're going to boost them and open them wide um, and the flow will circulate much better. So doing that, doing this high temperature and I think it helps. Uh, but again, I'm not an expert, but I guess if you do too much, you may have <laughs> all the effects. Dehydrate, of course. Of exactly. Course. But um, but I think it makes sense in that aspect. For each shock, I, I, I haven't read all these uh, articles, but uh, yeah, it's it's something on the news. And you know, all these things, people, sometimes they put that uh, all, you know, in the news without saying uh, too much details and people think, okay, we're going to save Alzheimer's with sauna. Uh, but no, yes. definitely for brain health, it's very <laughs> important uh, to do that. Fitness. This would seem so obvious uh, across the board in pretty much every aspect of health, whether we're yeah. talking about mitochondria, cardiology, reversing mm -hmm. type 2 diabetes. Fitness, 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 number one form of preventative medicine. 
would this be your top go-to for prevention of cognitive yeah. decline? Yes, the top two definitely, as you said, diet, exercise are the that's the best thing we can do as we speak. Uh, prevention, unfortunately, there is some drugs we can talk a bit later, but that's that's what you need to do, not only for cardiac health but for brain health and. You know, doing aerobic exercise, so just running and, and, you know, regularly, or even when you're a bit too old, walking, uh, gardening, uh, washing, cleaning up your apartment is enough to, to you know, um, um, you know, increase your heart rate and then again, open the, the, the blood vessels. And something I wanted to mention about this, which is linked to, to the diet also and the sauna a bit, but... When you open, so the, the barrier is what we told um, earlier about the blood-brain barrier. It's important to keep it sealed and tight to avoid things to go in. But also we want this barrier to be functional in a way that we want glucose to go in, as we said, right. but we want also right. the toxins to go out. And we haven't talked about this. And amyloin is a toxin that goes out through the blood-brain barrier. And if you don't have the transporters that basically are clearing out amyloid, which, so there's a few rage, NRP1, so there's a few transporters that are here to take amyloid from the brain, the excess, and putting that out uh, into the cerebrospinal fluid uh, or in the blood, and to make sure the brain doesn't have excess of amyloid and form plaques. And the fact that you, there's a lot of studies nowadays that shows if you do exercise and do, they do that in humans and animals now, or if you do, a, if you have like a special Mediterranean diet or a good diet, you improve these uh, receptors at the BBB, the function of these receptors. So you, you improve the clearing of toxins from the brain, plus you improve, you know, your cerebral blood flow. So it's like a synergistic effect uh, where diet and exercise are the number two things you we should all do um, to keep healthy. Yep. Um, Doc, is it is there one form of exercise you'd recommend over another? I would imagine. As I know you said, like, listen, we, we want to get you moving. Like, even if you're getting older, nobody's expecting you to run wind sprints at 12 yeah, miles an hour. However, if I was to spend four days in the gym, would I think to myself, okay, kind of the steady state cardio would be better or mm -hmm. hit training where you're getting very breathless and for 10 to 20 minutes and really stressing your cardiovascular system and trying to get it to evolve and grow new capillaries. Is that a possibility of stressing the cardiovascular system like that with that kind of high intensity training? Or am That's I exactly that's exactly, oh, exactly it. That's what people tend to say. And, and there's more and more evidence, like having short 20 minutes um, high intensity cardio will basically, that's what also the optician says for your eyes, right? To keep your eyes healthy. You know, these eyes, they have, they have a lot of blood vessels also uh, in the retina. So these tiny blood vessels, same as in the brain. And they do the same. If you don't exercise, they're going to collapse and you're going to have loss of vision and macular degeneration and things like that, which you don't want. So it's the same thing. It's, again, blood vessels. And these uh, high intensity are proven to be uh, to be the best, like 20 minutes. I mean, of course, uh, 20 minutes or, or less, but very high intensity cardio to open up these capillaries that are collapsing over time. And that's at least that's what I, I've, I've read um, these recent years. Right. My, me as well. Um, all right. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Doc, I would love your thoughts on what the future of treatment looks like. Some of these new drugs we're hearing about, like Lecanemab. I can't even. Lecanemab. <laughs> yeah. We'll be right back with Dr. Axel Montagna. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, I'm going to try this again, Doc. Lecanemab mm -hmm. and Donanemab. 
Uh, I got it in my news alerts on my phone here. Oh, it's the science today. New drug. This might be the end of Alzheimer's. Is this true? What are these things? What are they doing? Who can take them? What are your thoughts? Yes. So, yeah, it's all over the news. Uh, so these are immunotherapy. So this is an antibody. So it's a vaccine, basically, that will That's... target the amyloid plaques. So it's an antibody that will target the amyloid plaque. So you inject to the people. Uh, it crosses the blood-brain barrier, as, we, as we've discussed, and it's going to basically destroy the plaques um, in the brain. So um, there is many, I think you cited two, but I think there is a few ongoing, and there is some, uh, the last clinical trials ongoing, and there's a few countries, including the US, there's one that is FDA approved, I think. Um, so they start doing that. The problem, I would say, it's great. I think it's great hope. But the problem is when you have amyloid plaques in the brain, some of the damage might be ir irreversible, right? So what we want to do is avoid the buildup of plaques rather than removing them, which I think might be good for certain people. But it turns out that the, the, the literature is showing that the cognitive improvement is not that great, to be honest. So there's a little impact, a little effect, which is great. So I don't want to say it's, it, it's bad. It's, it's great for Alzheimer's disease. And that's the first time we have something that kind of works a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think it tells us that if we have this immunotherapy, removing plaques, that's great. But what I strongly believe in is we should have a cocktail of treatment where we have another drug next to it to improve the vasculature and, and the blood-brain barrier. Because you, you need these vessels, as I said, to clear out amyloid buildup. If you inject you know, your antibody and you destroy plaques, they, they're going to come back. You know? Or you mm -hmm. have to inject uh, every month. Or... So right. great advance. I mean, it's great for Alzheimer's disease uh, research and for people having Alzheimer's. But I think we need to go much more than that and trying to tackle that much earlier than when there's a lot of plaques in the brain. We are getting somewhere, so that's great. Okay. If I have a genetic predisposition, and I yeah. I understand it's the, please correct me here, the, is it the APOE4 gene or is it the APOB4? Okay, okay. APOE. APOE. If you have these two matches of this one gene from mom and dad, you're significantly more predisposed to developing Alzheimer's. Correct. Based on your research and what you've seen, could it be prevented if you're genetically predisposed in that fashion? Yes. So, yes. So you can carry uh, two alleles. So you can be homozygous for APOE4, which increase your risk by 12 to 15 fold. Uh, if I recall uh, correctly, to develop Alzheimer's disease. But it doesn't mean you will, right? It's, it's a genetic risk. Um, and there is also people carrying one allele. So they are heterozygotes. So they, they are APO, APOE3, uh, APOE4. So they, they have a, a risk about six, eightfold um, to develop right. the, the disease. And so what I've been working on the past few years is uh, I was... Uh, I was lucky enough to work at the University of California, Southern California, USC, where we had a cohort of people um, carrying this gene and controls that don't carry the, 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 the gene, APOE4. And we basically scanned their brain uh, using magnetic resonance imaging, using PET imaging, which is a, another way to look at amyloid buildup in the brain. And we collected, we did lumbar puncture, we collected their cerebrospinal fluid to look at the biomarkers that are changed over time. And what we found, long story short, what we found in these people having this genetic risk is when we look at the MRI scans and we are looking, we have a special sequence to look at uh, the permeability of the blood-brain barrier. What we found is just having the APOE4 gene well, basically, uh, these people have uh, in one particular region of the brain a leaky, I mean, a leakier blood-brain bar barrier than people non-carrying the gene. And this area of the brain is called the medial temporal lobe. So that's basically on the side of the brain where you have the so-called hippocampus, 
So that's the, the brain region of uh, learning and memory uh, in the brain. Uh, and these areas tend to have a more permeable blood-brain barrier, just having the gene. And these people are cognitively normal. We are just following them as we speak. And, and what we found is when we collected their, their uh, cerebrospinal fluid, we found a biomarker um, that is linked to uh, the pericyte that we were talking earlier. Right. And we that have a, we have a way to measure. That lives in the blood-brain barrier and helps protect it, things from going in, going exactly. out, removing the bad stuff. They have a so when, plaques. Exactly. When they detach and die, they release a molecule in the cerebrospinal fluid that we can measure. So what we measure is we can have a, a, an indirect way of saying, okay, if you have that amount of this uh, biomarker, it means that you lost quite a bit of parasites in your brain. So we have these uh, things, and it's very interesting because now this biomarker is still, you know, work in progress, and a lot of groups worldwide are using it now. But there is some predictive value in the sense that if you if you measure and you can measure in the blood now, which is uh, even better. Um, if you have high level of this biomarker, uh, we followed people for five years and we found that the people, we, when we take the people with the high levels of this biomarker, they will decline cognitively much faster than the people not having these high levels. So it's another biomarker that comes um, very interesting for research and possibly uh, for diagnosis purposes. But it tells you that with scanning of the brain and looking at your biofluids, we have markers of vascular disruption or vas uh, like blood-brain barrier breakdown that now we can really measure. And we know that these things are very early. So what it tells us is we need to protect the blood vessels. That's one way. And what we are trying to do is trying to understand, uh, find a drug basically that will seal the, that blood-brain barrier back to normal. And uh, we had a few uh, articles recently that show we tried a few drugs that are uh, uh, tested uh, in different conditions, but one uh, is te tested right now in hepatitis C. Um, so that's a drug that basically targets uh, pericytes and the blood-brain barrier in terms of inflammation. So when pericytes detach, there's a lot of inflammation going on. And we can uh, we can block this inflammation specifically at that level of the blood-brain barrier, and and I've worked with animals, and when we treat these animals that do have ApoE4, so they have a leaky barrier, if we treat them for one month every day, they they have uh, they have a, a blood-brain barrier that is going back to normal in terms of function, and it's not leaky anymore, and and these animals tend to be better cognitively. So we have some hints, you know, in animals that we are going to the right direction. If you protect blood vessels, you protect brain function. I'm not saying we're going to cure, obviously, dementia, but we can at least postpone uh, significantly uh, brain health, like brain cognition, cognitive impairment. Uh, but at least what I can say, and I'm stopping here, is um, one of the, the common denominator is always there is some sort of vascular dysfunction in the brain uh, that tend to be quite early. It can come from different causes, but that's what we are trying to understand. That's what's going on. That is, um, and so guys, to recap on ApoE4, if you have uh, two pairs of ApoE4, then you are greatly genetically predisposed. Yes. And in those cases, um, from whenever I speak to doctors in their various fields, whether it is cardiology or cognitive decline, it would always seem that the genetic predisposition is five to 10%. It's not that common, yeah. but when you consider, okay, 10 out of a hundred people, that's a lot, especially if you're one of the 10. Yeah. And that's really where your perfect eating and your perfect lifestyle and your perfect everything Definitely. don't yeah. stop the disease from progressing in 90 something percent of many of the cases. And that's why it's so critical to have these medical interventions on top of it all. Yes, but w just one clarification. Um, Please. If you have a genetic risk for Alzheimer's ApoE4, it has been shown that you can um, kind of balance the impact of this genetic risk if you, let's say, you increase your exercise and diet okay. and have better diet. So you have a way to, and that's what people do, at least the people I know that are carriers that are a bit 
of course, you freak out a little bit. So you can do things in your life that mm -hmm. will improve your health, your brain health, your vessels, so that you, you know, you can protect as much as you can um, the risk, right? So it's not like uh, you cannot do anything. I, right, right. It, it, I understand. Doc, how do I know? I'm listening to the show and I'm thinking, holy heck, like, what if I have two April E4 genes? How do I know if this is already beginning in my brain? How can people be proactive to see where they are at in the spectrum of developing the disease or their potential yeah. for developing the disease? I mean, first of all, I mean, people normally, if you get, if you have a family, your grandma, or, I mean, that's where you start investigating and, and try to get to that, you know, whether you have APOE or whether you have something else. Um, to be proactive, I mean, it comes back to prevention at midlife. It's very important. We know between 30 years old, 50 years old, that's the, I mean, of course, you can do before and after, obviously, but um, this is a critical period where you have to keep your brain, I mean, your blood vessel healthy with diet, with exercise and everything. It's much better than after that because it's a bit less clear. It's still good to do exercise and everything uh, after, obviously, but it's not as strong of an impact on brain health. Would you recommend, like, if I'm going to my doctor, how, what do I ask for a brain scan? Am I saying, oh, give me an epidural and check my spinal fluid? Is there a way to know if you're at risk? Not really, because, I mean, if everybody wants to stop doing that, it's going to be a bit crazy. Um, okay. but, 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 of course, what happens usually is when you have some sort of symptoms and then you go. But if you want to know, I mean... So first of all, I don't want to promote anything, but there is a few platforms where you can give, a, you can swab uh, inside your mouth and send um, to uh, these companies and they're going to have a checkup on different things. And you can check the box you want, but you can have a genetic risk for many diseases. And one of them is APOE4. Um, so you can do that, pay, you pay, you send your DNA and it's going to process it and it's going to tell you whether you have it or not. But that's it. Then if you have it, I mean, the best thing is to have a, to go see a neurologist, right? Uh, that's that's of course. all you can do. And, and, and they're going to probably tell you that, as I said, maybe earlier, you can take your life differently. If you, if you were not great before, like uh, you remove smoking, you try to sleep very well. We didn't talk sleep, but sleep is a big deal. What is your recommendation on sleep? Is it the standard seven to eight hours? Is it don't take sleeping pills? What are your thoughts? So it's not a matter of how much you sleep. It's the quality of sleep. So people tend to think that, okay, if I sleep 10 hours, it's great. No, I mean, I, I, I mean, one from one person to another, you don't, you know, some people can sleep less and more. I mean, it depends. It's very viable. But what you need is a good quality of sleep. I would rather sleep five hours very good than 10 hours and you don't sleep good. And the reason why we talk about sleep here is um, to just to link back to the blueprint barrier. During that sleep time, that's where um, there's an enlargement of the perivascular space, so the, the space between the blood vessels. And what happened is that the period when you sleep is when you clear out toxins from the brain. So to make a very simple way of uh, concluding about this is if you don't sleep well, you don't clear toxins. your toxin enough and you wake up to another day, you already have toxins. So it can be chronically very damaging um, to your brain health. With that said, would you then recommend if an individual has something like sleep apnea, uh, they get the CPAP. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, wear your mask. If you have one, it means you need one. And, and you know, when you sleep and you have sleep apnea, for example, um, yeah, your, your brain will be transiently in under hypoxia, uh, meaning that there is not enough oxygen and you know, for the brain to, to be happy. So you need to wear this mask. And, and the long run is, as you said, it's a vicious circle because these pericytes and this blood-brain barrier is very sensitive to this lack of flow and lack of, um, you know, lack of um, uh, oxygen. So if you think about all these tiny vessels, they will collapse and disappear over time. And you can right. get dementia very quickly. Uh, 
I mean, in a matter of years. So, yeah, definitely. Um, a dumb question. Dumb question. I'm sorry. Can't help myself here. Blood volume. When I think yeah. about, okay, well, we want the blood to be not too thin, not too thick. Uh, yeah. you know, we want the blood. Would dehydration be counterintuitive over time? Because I'm crappy at drinking my water and now I'm getting a little <laughs> nervous. No, so that's. As you're talking, yeah, I've what, been taking little sips of my water. Or am no, I just that, paranoid? No, that's what I tell my mom every day. She doesn't drink enough. But no, I think drinking water is, I mean, as important, I would say, as we said, the most two important things are diet and exercise, right? But which is kind of linked to diet, but drinking water, of course. I mean, I would, I force myself also. It's hard because, you know, you don't want to drink sometimes, but I drink more than what I want just because I want, and I can see an impact on myself. You know, sometimes if you have, if you have some migraines, sometimes you can just yes. remove them just by drinking enough. It's enough. So, no, very important, obviously. So it keeps your blood fluids, um, I mean, your blood um, good and fluid enough. Um, and plus you need water for many organs and for your brain to function uh, normally. So, yeah, uh, big plus. Please drink. Please, Doc, where can people <laughs> get more information from you? Can you give us all the social handles and how can they continue to learn from all the work you're doing um yes so yeah we are quite active on twitter so my lab so we have a twitter lab account which is uh, arobas mountain lab so it's uh, as easy as this and i have my personal twitter which is just about science again so it's not really personal twitter but very into science and promoting the vascular contribution to dementia and how we, we keep the blood vessels healthy so that's my name axel underscore mountain so it's easy to remember. And the last thing, we have a website, uh, mountainlab.com, uh, where we put some news. If you go in the news tab, we can show you a bit of what we do and where we go to promote the, the research and and try to, yeah, try to find a cure. That's the goal. You're just marvelous and wonderful and brilliant and genius. And I am so grateful uh, that you gave me your time and you tolerated my ignorance. <laughs> you are an absolute trooper. No, thank you very much. And, and really appreciate that. And uh, it's good to put the word out there and people stay healthy and exercise diet. Very important for your brain. If you're enjoying the show, do us a big favor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it just helps us get the show out there, get heard by more people. We'd really appreciate it. All right, my beautiful babies. The fitness app has a free trial. I want you to check it out. If you've got the meal tracker app, the food planning app, the running app, the yoga app, the meditation app, the breathwork app, stop. Right now, stop the insanity because the fitness app is a one-stop shop. It's got it all, guys. It customizes your meal plans based on your food preferences and your personal health goals. It customizes your workouts based on where you want to train, your fitness level, your fitness goals, whether you're in the gym, at home, outside. You have a baby coming in. It's prenatal fitness. You want to get crazy with Ryan Clarenbach and do his beast mode program from yoga to kickboxing. We have you covered. There are meditations in the app. There's sleep support with Jim Donovan, self-care with Jamie McFadden, free trial. Just go to the app store, whether you're on Android, Google Play, the Apple iTunes store. It's there for you. Download it. Give it a try. I think you're going to love it. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.